You're listening to Denver Orbit. Episode 36. Deep Listening. Hello and welcome to Denver Orbit. This rickety old contraption is actually an audio magazine that features voices, stories, and other bits of interesting audio from Colorado's creative community. I'm the host of this old thing called Josh Madison. That's what I'm called, I guess. So I was gathering some archival tape for today's story, uh, doing a little research, and I stumbled upon this compelling little piece of audio. Now I have a swell surprise for you. The famous winner of the typical American boy contest has now become Popsicle Pete. And here's a message from him. Hello, everybody. I sure am glad to meet you. And boy, am I glad I was picked to be the typical American boy. Because now I'm Popsicle Pete. This brings up a lot of questions. Was this actually a real contest? I don't think so. But I decided to spend some time Google searching this. And of course, I couldn't really find anything out about that contest, so I don't think it's real. But still, what would the ideal American boy of the 1930s have been like? And how did he morph into Popsicle Pete? I also couldn't find out who did the Pete voice either, uh, which was kind of disappointing. So, you know, what you hear is what you get on this. Apparently, you can send in your wrappers and get some presents from the Popsicle company. So, you know, there's an incentive to eat lots of Popsicles. Now I have a chance to tell you about some wonderful presents you can get. Free. Do you want to see them? Hundreds of them. You get them just for saving bags from Nifty Popsicle, Pudgicle, and Creamsicle. Some gifts. Even better than Christmas. In the 80s and uh, early 90s, it appears the Popsicle company tried to bring old Pete back to life in a series of commercials, which, um, I don't know, usually depicted some kind of apocalyptic heat engulfing an unnamed city. Pete would rush in and save the day by raining popsicles down from the sky or from his fingers or whatever. Choose that popsicle, Pete. It's the double treat. At this point in history, this just kind of feels like a ham-fisted metaphor of our current predicament, but, you know. Pete is also surfing around the sky on a popsicle label, and maybe more distressingly, his body appears to just be a popsicle with arms, legs, and a head attached. So, in the end, Popsicle Pete may be one of the more pointless rabbit holes I've ever been down. And that's really saying something, because I've been down a lot of them, and now I've taken you all with me. So, let's turn our attention to today's show instead. We have just one thing today, an essay by the writer Mareg Case. She came in to read an essay she wrote a little while back about Pauline Oliveros, Wilma Deering, and Deep Listening. Now, these probably aren't household names or ideas or anything, so a little explanation is in order. Pauline Oliveros was a teacher, author, composer, and electronic music pioneer. The essay that we're featuring today focuses on her work, Deep Listening. Pauline says of deep listening, quote, 
It's an aesthetic based upon principles of improvisation, electronic music, ritual, teaching, and meditation. This aesthetic is designed to inspire both trained and untrained performers to practice the art of listening and responding to environmental conditions in solo and ensemble situations. The essay also focuses on a figure from Pauline's childhood, Wilma Deering. Wilma Deering is a fictional character who appears in the Buck Rogers series of comics, radio shows, and TV. And as I'm not a writer or anything, I'm going to leave it to Mairead to tie all of these ideas together. So, here she is, reading her essay, Pauline Oliveros, Wilma Deering, and Deep Listening. Oh, and one final thing, all of the music you're going to hear in this next piece is actually from Pauline Oliveros' album, Deep Listening, which I would actually highly recommend you just go out and buy and listen to. This essay is a lyric and a guess. Thoughts about Wilma Deering and space opera and sound, because composer Pauline Oliveros said she loved Buck Rogers on the radio as a child. And so I want to begin with two facts about myself. Two things I already know connect. One, I didn't know Pauline personally, but that's not because we never met in person. I was coordinator at the Naropa Summer Writing Program during Pauline's last performance there in 2016. And friends, Pauline and her wife, Ioni, were the most clear, direct, smart folks to work with. Their only extra request was a vegan meal of any kind. They were quick to laugh. Pauline was 84, and I remember she wore a purple sequined baseball cap both days, which made its own kind of music on the walls as it caught the light. Sending you all best, Ioni emailed before the couple arrived. Sounds like we'll be fine. We'll see you soon. The second fact is that I grew up around Seattle, so I know Fort Warden, where Deep Listening, one of Pauline's legacy recordings and states of being, was recorded in 1989. 20 years later, we went on a high school retreat there, and I walked around in the dark with Deep Listening on my cheap drugstore headphones. The sound was poor, though I didn't know that then, but I felt it, the sound, in my body, in that space, and this seems important. I remember freaking out because the first noise was silence, which felt like death because I didn't know anything about silence. Silence requires stillness, and I didn't know how to be still. It is not a stretch to say Pauline helped me learn how. I never asked Pauline about Wilma Deering, and of course, Wilma is not some kind of cosmic cipher for Pauline. Pauline is her own, and I'm not trying to explain her or to write a biography. But we all know Pauline listened. She reminded herself to listen. And time and again, she cited the Buck Rogers radio show as an important listening experience in her childhood. I wish I knew how Pauline sat by the radio. Was she sitting in chairs like we are? Did she sit up straight or did she flop a little? Did she already have between-the-knee space for the accordion? Was she lying prone? We know the body's position is just as important as its shape, 
Eardrums, fat, bones, all affect how we hear, but so does their juxtaposition, their unit. In this way, learning to listen from someone else is like learning to dance. I sat in the back of the room during Pauline's SWP lectures and consequently watched the purple sequin hat light more than her face. Most people don't remember Wilma Deering, Pauline told Steve Smith of the New York Times in 2012. Wilma Deering was Buck Rogers' co-pilot, she said. She was not only a woman in a co-pilot situation, but she was a lieutenant and then a colonel. This was a very advanced idea for 1932. Pauline was born in 1932 too. I'm not sure how much Buck Rogers a baby could track, but that doesn't really matter. What does is we know Pauline listened to the sci-fi radio show, which first aired in 15 minute episodes, Monday through Thursday, and that she loved Wilma Deering, who was voiced by Adele Ronson. My process, Pauline often said, always begins with listening, and so it isn't nuts to think something began with Wilma, too. Certainly Wilma had a humor to her that I don't think is always represented in academic work about Pauline. I could hear her laugh across an auditorium. Pauline was born in Houston, 1932, Buck Rogers in August, 1928, and Armageddon, 2419 AD, a novella written by Philip Francis Nolan and published in Amazing Stories magazine. A second novella starring Rogers, The Airlord of Han, was published the following March. In these stories, Buck founds the American Radioactive Gas Corporation when he returns from World War I. But on December 15, 1927, a mine shaft explodes in Pennsylvania, trapping Buck in suspended animation for 500 years. When he wakes up, he freaks out and roams the forest, setting traps, smacking rodents with clubs, and trying to survive this psychic crisis. Then he meets Wilma. Keep that meeting in your mind, Buck and Wilma and Pauline, while we switch to science fiction and space opera, which are the genre and subgenre of Buck Rogers. Science fiction, to quote Chip Delaney, is anti-utopian, which is different from the utopia-dystopia binary. Science fiction doesn't waste time thinking about perfect cities, perfect wilderness, even perfect post-apocalyptic landscapes. Rather, it integrates. It imagines relationships, polyphony, dialogue, multiple perspectives, much like Pauline and her work do, and ask us to do too. Instead of imagining one perfect world, science fiction imagines how multiple worlds work together in harmony or discord. It is, like Pauline's work, about range and richness. Science is from the Latin, to know. Fiction, as we know, is truth too. Space opera is a subgenre of science fiction, though it is linked more immediately to soap operas, which are called soap operas because they used to be sponsored by soap companies. One cool thing about space opera is that it does not include origin stories. It just dives in. It is. We don't need to know how space travel happened. We just know that we're here on Mars right now. I look at the pictures. There are so many of Pauline as the only woman in a room, and I think about space opera. We're here on Mars right now. What's next? 
Like the soaps, space operas include war, melodramatic adventure, chivalric romance, and risk-taking. There is a lot of action and a lot of virtue, and their opposites, entrapment and evil. In many cases, especially in pulp magazines, space opera was understood as the purest form of science fiction. Many magazines, Galaxy for example, made fun of authors who automatically switched over from crime waves to earth invasions. Here's one spoof. Jets blasting, Bat Durston came screeching down through the atmosphere of Bluznodge, a tiny planet seven billion light years from Seoul. He cut out his super hyperdrive for the landing. And at that point, a tall, lean spaceman stepped out of the tail assembly, proton and gun blaster in a space-tanned hand. Get back from those controls, Bat Durston, the tall stranger lipped thinly. You don't know it, but this is your last space trip. So, this is science fiction, but it isn't space opera because it borrows from pre-existing worlds. Here too, I think about Pauline as a pioneer, like an actual pioneer actively exploring new territory, not just a word in a magazine describing someone who's been around a while, a seminal composer. Deep Listening, it's a book, as well as an album and a daily practice, begins with a quote from composer and inventor Lucia Lugozuski. The first concern of all music, in one way or another, is to shatter the indifference of hearing, the callousness of sensibility, to create that moment of solution we call poetry, our rigidity dissolved when we occur reborn, in a sense, hearing for the first time. When we occur reborn, when Buck woke up in the cave. That said, for all the noise space opera makes about separating itself from historical context, it didn't try very hard, broadly speaking, there are always exceptions, to separate itself from prejudice. The villains in Buck Rogers are Mongols who, after subjugating the Russians, zapped and melted American stone and metal with disintegrator rays from the sky. After this, the yellow blight took over America, this doesn't have anything to do with Pauline, but it is an important part of Buck Rogers, and so it keeps me, you, us, from loving the story as much as we might otherwise. Buck Rogers lived in comics, movies, radio, multiple television shows, at the Chicago World's Fair, and in movie serials. As Pauline only ever spoke to Adele Ronson's Wilma Deering, in the records I found at least, to the 1930s radio Wilma Deering, to listening, I will focus on this Wilma too the Wilma on the radio. Her voice is her voice, and you can find it in the archive, but I describe it as Judy Garland mixed with Billy Burke, as Dorothy mixed with Glinda, sweet but a few more cigarettes in. In the serial, Wilma is frequently referred to by her rank, lieutenant or colonel, which cuts the sweetness even more. While listening to the shows in preparation for this essay, I noticed the lack of a theme song. Rather, the sound at the start of Buck Rogers is a rushing rocket noise, not unlike an analog loop. When Buck Rogers first meets Wilma, he thinks she's a boy. Also, America is a wreck. I don't know how he knows this, waking up alone in a cave after a 500 year sleep, but he does, and so we believe him. I awoke to find the America I knew a total wreck, to find Americans a hunted race in their own land, hiding in the dense forests that covered the shattered and leveled ruins of their once magnificent cities, desperately preserving and struggling to develop in their secret retreats the remnants of their culture and science, 
and the undying flame of their sturdy independence. This passage could be about making America great again or the fall of capitalism, which is another example of how space opera radicalizes by asking folks to listen, to look, which will ideally create empathy and then to ask questions. Ideally, this makes the questions hopeful. I like thinking about baby Pauline listening to these sounds, wild forests, flaming independence, ruined cities. What do we do next? When Buck meets Wilma, he doesn't notice her face, and so he doesn't describe it to the reader at all. Instead, he notices her attention, which is centered tensely on a particularly dense part of the forest. She's doing this because the villains are about to run out of the trees and shoot at her. Wilma is wearing rather tight-fitting garments, all green, and a green helmet. She has a gun and a combination belt backpack. She is queer, cautious, and able to jump 50 feet in the air. It is not until the calm after the shootout that Buck realizes Wilma is very slender and very pretty, so she must be a girl. Of course, we know that it is dumb to assume someone's gender purely because you want to make out with them, perhaps especially if they are a green outer space athlete, but that's outside the scope of this essay. Next, while she is unconscious and able to give consent, Buck Rogers bathes Wilma's face and battle wound. When she wakes up, Buck tells her his story, 500 years in suspense, etc., and beautifully, she believes him. She acknowledges that it's a hard thing to believe, but she does. In this way, listening leads to companionship, not codependency, and ultimately this changes the world. Next, Wilma asks if Buck's married, and he says no, and she is relieved simply because that makes it easier to bring him back to camp. And so, we have Wilma Deering, a strong, smart, ranking officer who can fire her own weapon and decide her own truth. As her story continues, again, because this is a space opera, we received facts and fully developed worlds, not epic histories. We learn that Wilma is an unmarried orphan who lives with seven other girls. She works in military and police scouting and factory work. Her main tools at both these gigs are rockets and cloth. She is elegant on the battlefield, leaping around and protecting her friends, but kind of a klutz off it. At one point, she just dives headlong into a wall and knocks herself unconscious. I laughed out loud at these moments. I think about Pauline taking herself towards the moon. Wilma and Buck do make love, Buck's phrase, but they do not really court each other. And anyway, Buck talks about Wilma's brain much more than he does her body, which is always just slender. However, her brain is studious, reflective, sincere. I imagine myself hearing this story as a child and just feeling relieved about the relationship. I knew what a smart brain was, specifically. I didn't know specifically about making love, but I didn't really want to. I wanted to leap around and protect my friends. So instead of being sexy, though of course she was, especially later on in the television shows and a satin rainbow of bodysuits, Wilma is an ideal companion because she protects, and she is brave and smart and autonomous. In fact, one night on a mission in the forest, Wilma is the one who propositions Buck. As the two fall asleep together, cuddled up because it's cold, she makes some sleepy remark about our mating, as though the matter were all settled. Buck remembers my surprise at my own instant acceptance of the idea, for I had not consciously thought of her that way before. Do we trust him? Maybe. 
Though in the morning, we found little time for lovemaking. The practical problem facing us was too great. The two seem to have a connection that doesn't need words, but doesn't really need sex either. I know there have been times in my life, particularly in my youth, when this was a dreamboat situation. If I could also have worn shiny tangerine onesies and jumped higher than trees, I would have been really happy. I'm not talking about being squicked out by sex or not. I am talking about knowing what you want and need so immediately that you have words for it and that you can say these words aloud and your companion understands them. I believe in the wisdom of this kind of clarity, this kind of childishness, and have learned that it's wise, not because it's naive, but because it's essential. Companionship, texture, height, done. Pauline's writing contains this kind of essence too. Deep listening is almost completely without purple passages, and I think the reviews of it that do are often missing the point, the wisdom. Again, Pauline and Wilma are always listening and acting, not projecting. Wilma doesn't ask Buck if he wants to come back to camp with her. She asks him if he's married. Pauline doesn't write about how people feel. She writes how the brain works. She asks people to imagine. She asks them to imagine heart energies traveling out into the universe as a healing for all victims and towards the end of violence. This sounds incredibly complicated, but when I look at the sentence structure, I realize I'm just being asked to try. I don't have to solve it alone. We're here on Mars right now. What's next? Wilma knocks herself unconscious in multiple episodes, and she is often adventuring alone, but she is never out of communication with Buck. This is an active state. When Buck tells Wilma he might die on a solo mission, she just looks at him, says she's proud, and asks for details. At one point, she leaps through the air and stabs an enemy in the neck. Wilma is a listener, a protector, but she also acts. At the end of Air Lords of Han, I'm not spoiling anything here, and yes, the book is deeply connected to the radio show, America is reclaimed, and the most glorious and noble era of scientific civilization in the history of the American race, sick, begins. Because this beginning is largely thanks to Buck and Wilma, and because Buck is alive because of Wilma, it is not a stretch to say that Wilma saves the world because of deep listening. Towards the end of Deep Listening, Pauline responds to a question about how she instills creativity, art, making, action. The most important thing for me, she writes, is facilitating a community of creative interest. Creativity is inborn, a birthright that is often suppressed by social imperatives, or say, disintegrator rays falling from the sky. So it is not about instilling, that would not be free. I don't think energy can be designed. I believe that facilitating a listening, caring, and sharing environment is an invitation to creative work. Indeed, in all versions of the Buck Rogers story, there is an abstract period of peace after the war is over and before the deaths of Buck and Wilma, courageous mates of bloody days. I like to think that they spent some of this time listening in chairs or on the floor, prone between the knee space for the accordion, however baby Pauline listened to the Buck Rogers radio show. In this way, our bodies become echoes, curves, sinusoids, laps. Like Ioni said, Pauline is the music. When you miss her, listen. We're here on Mars right now. What's next?
Marie Case is a working writer and teacher. She wrote the novel See You in the Morning and the poetry chapbook Tenderness. She's a columnist at Entropy and publishes widely on art, politics, music, and books. Marie teaches full-time 10th grade English and part-time poetry and narrative at Naropa, the Denver Women's Correctional Facility, and the Institute of American Indian Arts. Mairead has worked for places like Pitchfork, Louder Than a Bomb, and the Poetry Foundation, and performed at places like the Whitney Biennial and the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago. And that's going to do it for today. If you've got an idea for a segment that you want me to help you produce or something of that nature, anything at all, any kind of idea, just throw it at me. Let me know at denverorbit at gmail.com. And of course, we're on the social medias, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, yeah, we're there for some reason. And there will be links to all of that in the show notes. Denver Orbit is produced and edited and all that kind of thing by me, Josh Madison. And I'll see you again soon. Concerto number 47 in B minor by the composer Biff Schmarn. No, Biff Schmarnel Bottom. Up next, Bach.